0: Welcome to Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice at the supporting sponsor of Farm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. Later in today's episode, I have my very first remote guest, Shannon Huff, to talk about her ASCO abstract about monitoring patient-reported outcomes to nausea and vomiting and pharmacist interventions and their results um, up in Michigan. But first... Um, I'm gonna talk about uh, some of the notable stuff out of ASCO 2020. So we'll just jump right into uh, some of the plenary sessions. Uh, And the first one here is Javelin Bladder 100, which was a Velumab maintenance. So this was a phase three study, an interim analysis of that, about 700 patients, regardless of PD-L1 expression, which is notable since we do know from the FDA that patients with low level of PD-L1 expression uh, did not do as well with PD-L1 uh, or with uh, with immunotherapy compared to chemo in the first-line treatment of metastatic cancer. So these were metastatic patients who had already received um, their four to six cycles of platinum-based chemotherapy with gemcitabine um, you know, we don't know how many got four and six, and that may not matter, uh, and who got cis and carbo when you look at the ratios compared to best supportive care. So, patients got their chemo, and then as long as they didn't have progressive disease, so they had a complete response, partial response, or stable disease, they got randomized to best supportive care plus a Velumab or best supportive care alone. Now, there was a statistically significant overall survival benefit. Median OS was 21 months versus 14 months. Uh, however, it does not appear that crossover. Was allowed. So for the folks on best supportive care, did they go? Apparently, they could not go to a avelumab, and this has not been published yet. Um, uh, Do they get PEMBRO right away? Uh, these would questions we want to see in our uh, in the paper when it's uh, published. And the subgroup analysis suggests the benefit may be limited just to those who are PDL1 positive. Uh, and I think this is important because they included all patients PDL1 positive and PDL1 negative, negative. Uh, and if the overall survival benefit was, was really only in those PD-L1 positive patients. It's going to bring up those PD-L1 patients when you look at the total cohort. A way to think of this is between Michael Jordan and myself, we've won a combined six NBA Finals MVP Awards. Um, so when you combine everything, sometimes it can dilute uh, maybe the effect of, of someone else that's, that's in there. Now, um, there was a Phase two study Uh, in the same patient population, looking at maintenance pembrolizumab. This is only 100 patients in a phase two study versus about 700. In, in javelin bladder. Um, but the phase two study showed no difference in, in overall survival with Pembro versus placebo. Now, crossover was allowed. They specifically, in, in the abstract of this study, they say patients with placebo were able to cross over to Pembrolizumab, uh, which may be why that did not show a median overall survival benefit. So we certainly, we need to see more out of this, um, but uh, you know practice changing is something that was talked about on Twitter. So this is something that, that you know we might see uh, going forward. Um, the next uh, plenary uh, paper to talk about, or paper abstract to talk about, is a positive-negative study, and that's endurance, which is looking at KRD versus VRD. So treatment of first-line uh, multiple myeloma with carfilzomib, lin, and dex, or bortezomib, lenalidomide, and dex. Carfilzomib's been like a, you know a racehorse. Uh, The back line of therapy racing up to the front line of therapy. And when it gets to the front line of therapy compared to bortezomib, compared in a nice... You know, well-designed study uh, shows no benefit. So it was a negative study in that it didn't show a benefit of carfilzomib, but it was a positive study in that now we know that there's no benefit to adding carfilzomib up front to all patients with myeloma. Maybe there are some high-risk folks who might benefit. More work would need to be done to confirm that. Uh, The next one, and this is, I think, the most exciting thing that I saw out of ASCO. This was pembrolizumab versus chemo for metastatic colorectal cancer. And those patients with MSI high, microsatellite instability high, or deficiency of mismatch repair uh, in the DNA. This was a phase three study of a little over 300 patients with a follow-up of more than two years. And what we see here is the what's presented were the pro- progression-free survival curves that made, the, that made noise. The overall survival data is immature. Uh, and we would presume that those folks on chemo when they progressed because they had microsatellite instability, they went to to immunotherapy uh, right afterwards. And the chemo was full Fox or full Fury, plus or minus uh, an appropriate biologic, right? Um, Now, a couple things to talk about here. If you look at the PFS curves, initially in the first six months, the chemo folks do better. So there's about you know, 30% of patients who progress right away on pembrolizumab. So just because they have microsatellite instability doesn't mean everyone is gonna benefit from immunotherapy, at least when you give it up front. Uh, so it's puzzling, because those curves cross at six months. Now, once they cross at six months, and pembrolizumab curve stays on top when you look at the kaplan meier curves, uh, the pembrolizumab curve flattens, it almost plateaus, which is really exciting in metastatic disease to see a plateau in our progression-free survival. So to illustrate this, uh, the 12-month progression-free survival rate for Pembro in these folks was 55%. 12 months later, a year later, what do you expect? So um, after 12 months on Pembro, these folks with metastatic colorectal cancer, MSI high, half of them, 55%, are alive without progression in a year. What about two years? What do you think that number is? You think it's 30? You think it's 20? What is it? It's 48%. 46%? I can't remember right. 48%. So from 55 to 48 is not a very steep decline. That's a pretty nice plateau, um, and you wonder how long will that plateau go forward. That doesn't mean these folks are cured, certainly, um, but that's very very exciting to see a plateau in that progression-free survival curve, um, uh, and the curves separate very quickly uh, after you know after six months. Um, they cross over at six months, but then you know the Pembroke curve just. Just pulls away like secretariat if we're keeping with uh, horse racing analogies. Okay, and then uh, the last of the plenary session uh, to talk about is maybe the most controversial, and that's ad aura or ad aura. Uh, now, this is OC Mertnib in the adjuvant setting. So, OC Mertnib in the first line setting is FL hour, like first line hour, flora. In the adjuvant setting, it's ad aura. Uh, so, this is adju- adjuvant OC Mertnib. Um, for like three years or placebo. So these were folks with metastatic non-small cell lung cancer with mutated EGFR, either exon 19, exon 21, uh, some 1B patients up to 3A, about 650 to 700 patients. Now they got resection and then, quote, post-operative chemo was allowed. Why was that not mandated? That's what should happen to these folks that are high risk for recurrence. We know this from pivotal studies like JBR10, ANITA, et cetera. Um, the endpoint presented was disease free survival, which is the progression free survival of an adjuvant therapy study. And that hazard ratio was 0.21. It is a whopping disease free survival benefit. The two year disease free survival rate is 89% in the OC Merton arm versus 53% in the placebo arm. But this is adjuvant therapy. So, what's our goal of adjuvant therapy generally in oncology? It's killing micrometastatic disease. Which a TKI probably doesn't do as a cytostatic drug, not a cytotoxic drug, um, and then cure. And uh, we, you know, the overall survival date I think was something like four percent mature. So we haven't seen these folks uh, how often they die. Um, now there is a TKI that's approved in the adjuvant setting for renal cell carcinoma and sunitinib, uh, at, with six plus years of follow-up. There's a disease-free survival benefit that's about a median difference of over a year, but n- absolutely no overall survival benefit. Um, uh, adjuvant t-guys might be more promising in, in KRAS-mutated metastatic melanoma, which has a greater immune component than EGFR-mutated lung cancer does. Um, but, I mean, these these disease-free survival curves separate drastically. And there are two ways that you could look at this. And so view one is there's no overall survival benefit proven Uh obviously there'll be toxicity with the drug versus placebo. It's going to cost lots of money, and I said that with dollar signs. Uh, Three years of OC-mertinib is going to cost like more than around a CAR-T. And uh, we assume that the patients in the placebo, when they progress, they get OC-mertinib at progression. Otherwise, it's really going to uh, you know, negatively skew uh, your overall survival results when we see those. All right, so that's view one, kind of the evidence-based approach. Now, view two is kind of the patient-centered approach, which is the patient right here in front of me. They don't want their disease to come back. I've got a drug that you know almost doubles their the chance of being disease-free two years later. And when the the disease does come back. After two years, we're two years down the road in researching EGFR mutated non-small-cell lung cancer. Maybe we found a better combination of drugs or better drug. Okay, and I think both of those views are valid depending on your perspective. Now, in my opinion, three years of oc is going to cost a lot of money, and it better cure these folks, which I... Uh, I am reluctant to think that will happen with the TKI and and non-small-cell lung cancer, or it better provide a CML-like benefit for these patients and that their disease does not come back. Now, your average patient with non-small-cell lung cancer is probably not as healthy as your average patient uh, with, uh, with CML. That may or may not be true. Um, but that's my interpretation of, of ad hour. Obviously, everyone's going to want to see this overall survival data. I think what's going to be interesting is if that overall survival data comes back with a modest benefit, uh, what are people going to do um, if it does have a, show a modest OS benefit, but the PFS curves eventually still go to zero, meaning we're not curing patients. Uh, and, and really, what is our goal in adjuvant therapy? So those were the plenary session, uh, the plenary ones I wanted to talk about. Uh, Some other notable stuff, uh, sticking with lung cancer, there was a study of pembrolizumab. This is Keynote 604. Pembrolizumab plus platinum etoposide versus chemo alone and extensive stage small cell lung cancer. The overall survival benefit was not statistically significant at an interim uh, uh, interim analysis, even with a p-value of 0.016. Uh, the progression-free survival curves cross over here as well. Chemo alone did better initially than chemo plus, plus Pembro. So the big question is, why did Pembro not show this this benefit in overall survival when it was seen when atizolizumab was added to the same platinum etoposide backbone as well as drivalumab added to the, plane, to the same... Uh, platinum etoposide backbone. Well, the authors of Keynote 604, which is published uh, in, in JCO, uh, suggest that, you know, these patients had a, even the chemo loan arm, they had a lower than expected overall survival and that our patients in Keynote 604 were sicker than in uh, Empower whatever it was for atizolizumab and the Caspian study of durvalumab, And they cite that we had more patients in Keynote 604, the Pembroke study, that had ECOG-1 Performance status versus ECOG zero. There were more patients with brain mets. There was more disease burden. They were just sicker, and maybe that's true. There, there certainly was a, a benefit in regards to PFS. So the same trend kind of fits, and eventually someone will do a meta analysis of all these, all three of these studies, and probably see an overall survival benefit still with immunotherapy. Uh, now this was not uh, ASCO related, but there was an FDA approval uh, with all this going on uh, based on the RELAY study, which is ramucirumab plus erlotinib uh, in uh, EGFR mutated non-small cell lung cancer. This was published in Lancet Oncology in December. Uh, this showed an improvement of progression-free survival from 12 months uh, with erlotinib alone to 19 months when we added ramucirumab to erlotinib. Now the overall survival was the same, and those results are immature. What's interesting, though, and the paper does a good job uh, giving subsequent therapies. Uh, so in the second-line setting, uh, 22 to 25% got chemo with EGFR-mutated non-small-cell lung cancer after failing an erlotinib-based regimen. They didn't get OC-mertinib. Uh Well, some did. 15% in the experimental arm got erlotinib next, then 22% in the placebo arm. In the third line, 41% of folks in the... Uh, Experimental arm of ramucirumab or got 40 or got OC versus just 25% with placebo. So total OC mertinib use was 9% higher total in the ramucirumab or which is going to, you know, kind of skew overall survival in favor of ramucirumab versus erlotinib because more of them got another TKI OC mertinib afterwards. So certainly is not uh, an endorsement of using this regimen um, when. Um, I would encourage the listeners to go back and listen to the the podcast I did a while ago on Bevacizumab's wild ride in breast cancer, uh, where we saw a progression-free survival benefit with a VEGF targeting agent, but no overall survival benefit. And if I had the rights, this is when I would cue the who's, won't get fooled again. Okay, uh, moving on to other cancers that are caused by smoking. Uh, gastric cancer. Uh, this is a, a publication uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine, also presented at ASCO, of tristuzumab uh, deruxtecan, our tristuzumab-SN38 in the active metabolite of ironitecan, in HER2-positive gastric cancer. This was in the third-line setting. Um, this is a phase 2 study of under 200 patients, all Asian patients. So uh, two-to-one uh, randomized to trastuzumab, deruxtecan or chemo in the form of irinotecan or paclitaxel. Uh, as I said, it was done in Japan and South Korea. Uh, in the third-line setting, everyone had prior trastuzumab. Two-thirds had had prior remucerumab. One-third had prior immunotherapy, so heavily pretreated. Uh, they showed consistent improvements uh, with trastuzumab, deruxtecan in both response rate, overall survival, and progression-free survival. Um, so clear benefit in the third-line setting you know, game changer for Japanese South Korean patients. Potentially here as well, you know, I would guess that this would probably get FDA approval. From a historical perspective, uh, there was a, I think it was a Japanese study in extensive stage small cell lung cancer that showed cisplatin and irenatecan was superior to cisplatin topotecan uh, in small cell lung cancer. When that study was Duplicated here in the U.S., the overall survival was the same. So we have an—it's not an IT can, but it's an SN38, and there can be some pharmacogenetic differences between uh, the, that are ethnic in difference between uh, Asian and an American population. So just passing the, along the information here. Um, another, another update that was not ASCO related, but, uh, in Brave 150, the Tisla plus Bevacizumab regimen, uh, for hepatic, uh, hepatocellular carcinoma was FDA approved. We covered that publication in the May 14th episode. Uh, maybe one of the more surprising things to come out of ASCO was in Pancreatic Cancer, which is the publication of SWOG 1505, which was perioperative, GEM, nanoparticle bound, paclitaxel, or gemabraxane, versus uh, modified fulfurinox. And in the metastatic setting, we know that modified fulfurinox compared to gemcitabine has a larger benefit if you do a dangerous cross-trial comparison of gemabraxane versus gemcitabine alone. Uh, and I talked about that in, in a prior pod. So I think folks expected in the perioperative setting, where folks are getting a couple cycles of chemo, then surgery, then more chemo, that you would see modified fulfurinox do better. Uh, That was not the case. In fact, Jim Abraxane did a little bit better than Modified Fulfuronox. So that's certainly uh, interesting. Uh, And as we're kind of winding down here and getting to my interview with uh, with Shannon, uh, a couple quick... um Retrospective analyses that don't mean anything, but I still think are interesting worth passing on. One performed by the NIH, uh, the NIH looking at immunotherapy in patients with head and neck cancer and those who received antibiotics in, uh, in the last 30 days. And those who did receive antibiotics in the last 30 days did poor with immunotherapy. Than those who got immunotherapy for head and neck cancer without receiving recent antibiotics. Uh, I did a, I did an episode about this a while back. Uh, the theory here is that antibiotics disrupt the the microbiota, which has effects on um, uh, on the immune system, and then the effectiveness of immunotherapy to treat cancer. And there are now ten plus studies showing something similar to this in a retrospective fashion. This is from the NIH, certainly a reputable um, organization. So this is adding to that body of literature that if we can, we probably should avoid antibiotics in people about to start immunotherapy. And then another one was a retrospective review of 100 patients who received at least two months of immunotherapy, and did they use cannabis or not? and uh 28 of the 100 or so patients had received or used cannabis most of that was dronabinol there are a few cases of recreational marijuana but the median overall survival in these patients and in it its retrospective and they're not balanced groups whatever so it doesn't mean anything but the median overall survival was 40 months in the patients that did not have any cannabis including dronabinol versus 16 months which is uh like a third of that so um Really, really stark difference. Now, who uses dronabinol? Uh, when we use dronabinol, it's somebody who has anorexia and nausea from their cancer, and those patients are very, very, very far down their path in their cancer journey, and they usually have gone through several treatments and probably don't have a lot of time left. So, again, they weren't balanced, but certainly interesting and worth noting. And then the last thing I want to talk about from ASCO were two similar, um, uh, similar. Uh, Studies At least one was presented at One was published in, in The Lancet. And one is uh, CCC19, which is COVID-19 and Cancer Consortium. And the other is the UK Coronavirus Cancer Monitoring Program. These are large studies of 100 to 1,000 patients, observational in nature, just looking at patients with cancer and how do they die from chemo, kind of the take-home points here, having cancer, more of them died. And when you look at the risk factors for death, it's kind of consistent it's older age um, at least in the the american study it's being male it's a former cancer it's having a lower ecog performance status it's having disease that is more active versus uh like progressing versus disease it's active but well controlled versus uh, remote history of cancer in the past uh, but receiving cancer therapy did not ha- show an increased risk of death in both of these studies um, whether it's any type of cancer treatment in the American study or chemo within the last four weeks in the UK study. So if you're engaged in um, chemotherapy counseling with patients during the time of COVID, uh, there, you, it is fair to say it's a very evolving situation with this virus but the best data we have at this time does not suggest that receiving chemo increases your risk of dying from this virus. Uh, So if you've got someone who's kind of on the fence about receiving adjuvant therapy uh, because they're worried about an increased risk, um, you have now stronger evidence to counsel them on the benefits of adjuvant, um, you know, likely still outweigh the risks. Okay, well, let's hear from uh, my interview with Shannon Huff. I am pleased to be joined by Shannon Huff, who is a clinical pharmacy specialist in thoracic oncology at the University of Michigan Cancer Center. Welcome Shannon.
1: Thanks so much for having me today.
0: Well, I'm really excited to talk to you about your, uh, your abstract that you submitted to, to ASCO and, and was accepted for, uh, for a presentation. So from looking at this, it looks like you're able to figure out a way for patients to text you or the cancer center about nausea that they experienced after chemo and then pharmacists intervened when necessary. And this pharmacist intervention led to actually to a decrease in healthcare utilization related to nausea. So how did you do it?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it has been a long journey, um, really starting with a desire to improve the quality of care provided to our cancer patients. So uh, at the University of Michigan, I was um, pleased to be part of our one, some of our quality initiatives And when we were reviewing data about where our patients were seeking care, we saw a lot of our patients were being seen in the urgent care areas and the emergency department for things like nausea, vomiting, um, and dehydration. As a pharmacist, I thought, those are really symptoms that I think we could probably manage a little bit better. And sometimes I hear patients in clinic talking about having those symptoms in their previous cycle, and they didn't even call or tell us about it. Um, So we worked with our partners with um, our electronic health record, and we were able to identify a mechanism within our EMR to identify some high-risk patients to offer this remote texting program, um, which following their treatment um, sends them a series of messages for seven days after treatment to check in on how they're feeling. After they get those messages, if they reply with a pre-specified parameter that meets a threshold. Those notifications go directly into a pharmacist in-basket in our EMR, um, and we monitor those Monday through Friday um, and triage them quickly to an appropriate clinical pharmacist who works in that disease area and may even know the patient. Uh, We reach out and check in on what's going on, make modifications to their plan. Sometimes we provide Um, background education. Sometimes we recommend additional changes to their plan, work with their team, or even get a referral for the pharmacist to manage those symptoms through a collaborative practice agreement.
0: Okay. So, and I think the high risk patients from your abstract was anybody that got an NK1 antagonist?
1: Yeah, that part I thought was really neat because we really struggled with who would be the best patient population. And so when I think about it as a pharmacist, I think about patients getting highly emetogenic chemotherapy And then some patients who I maybe needed to escalate their care from the previous cycle. And so we thought administration of an NK1 antagonist captured both of those patient populations and didn't require us to continually update what medications and doses of chemo or new drugs were prompted um, NK1 antagonists or a regimen that hit kind of the high emetogenic risk category.
0: Okay. So patients get a text message and it comes from the cancer center. Like it's not from you as the pharmacist. It comes from, it's an automatic generated text. It sounds like.
1: Automatic generated text. It comes about um, the same time every day. They, they get sent around 10 AM uh, and it will tell the patient uh, the first day it says you've successfully enrolled, which is kind of confirmatory after they've been sitting in the, in the infusion suite and then hear that they've enrolled in the program. And then yeah, around 10 o'clock every day, they get a message that says, hey, it's time to report your symptoms um, and asks them a series of questions that were derived from uh, the mask anti-emesis tool, which is a validated tool, plus a few other questions that get it kind of the, are you feeling crummy? Are you eating and drinking? Um, Questions, which we also thought were really driving our emergency department use.
0: Yeah, that's, I think that's, uh, that's excellent because I know that the times that we see patients admitted for, for chemo, you know, for refractory nausea and vomit after chemo, it's usually a mixture of some lack of, you know, suboptimal treatment, prophylactic treatment, and then some other disease-related factors, or they just weren't, they weren't eating and drinking. That's like, I didn't really, I didn't throw up really, but I just never ate and drank the whole time after chemo. So I think that that that's great. How long would you would say it would take a patient to reply to these texts?
1: Um, so we monitor those each day and I would say we do get most of the replies in around 11. It was my, actually it was my turn to monitor it this morning and I did get replies in around 11, 11, 15. Um, so patients do reply pretty quickly. And so it's nice that we actually initially started sending the messages at noon and found that we were not able to respond to them with enough time to potentially get them into the, to the infusion suite if they needed hydration. It was kind of too late in the day. So we moved the messages up to 10 a.m. so we could address some of those things in the same day after we um, implemented the program.
0: I see. Um, so patients enrolled in this, so they had the option of doing this, it sounds like. So was yes. there any, you know, what was the buy-in like from patients? Were they reluctant at all, you know, especially older patients who may, maybe you're not so tech savvy?
1: Yeah, sometimes we do have patients who just aren't interested in engaging in a text-based program. Um, But when I looked at when we looked at the demographics for our patients, there still were a mix of older patients as well as younger patients um, who enrolled in the program. I'd be surprised. Sometimes I'm surprised at how savvy some of my older patients are. Um, I think some of them it was a text message burden, which is why we did have to um, assure that they wanted to enroll in the program because it does send up to seven text messages each day. Um, and some patients just weren't interested in that type of follow-up.
0: Yeah, I could see that. So let's yeah. say, um, you know, it sounds like you had um, to work with your your partners in your, in your EHR and stuff, your, you know, your IT folks maybe. So what were, I'm assuming that was a hurdle to, to get this set up, but how big of a hurdle was that? And what were some of the other hurdles in getting this up and running?
1: I think one of the nice things is that we weren't the first group Um, within the University of Michigan or Michigan Medicine to go live with this technology. So it did exist in other areas. Um, So that part was a little bit easier. I think the part that was more tricky was being mindful of when to get the patient enrolled to interrupt the workflow the least. And I think that we put a lot of thought into that part of the program and that helped it to be so successful. So for example, for someone to enroll the patient We really talked a lot about who should do that. Is it the physician at the time of prescribing the chemotherapy? Is it the pharmacist who's in the clinic? Is it the nurse who's administering the NK1? And we ultimately decided to um, ask the medical assistant in the infusion area to approach the patient. And we used a non-interruptive BPA in our medical uh, record that just showed on the infusion schedule. We displayed a new column in their work list that says enroll patient. Um, so it fit the work that they were already doing. They had the opportunity within their daily work to, to do and take on this work and were able to do that. And I think the the medical assistance opting in was part was a big part of the success of the program um, moving so quickly. Okay.
0: So I mean, this is great. you're keeping more people. <laughs> Is pharmacists, you know, intervening to keep patients out of, you know, urgent care facilities for, for nausea related stuff, especially in the time of COVID with trying to keep, you know, social distancing as much as we can still. Um, mm-hmm. So what advice would you give to other institutions that want to try to duplicate or recreate the service at their institution?
1: I think be open to opportunities that come your way. So one, I think, Um, we had to know what the problems were in our institution. So I had to know that we could impact ED utilization because nausea and vomiting and dehydration were driving that utilization. So I think that was the first part. Um, The second part is about the team of pharmacists who did this work. I'm talking about it, but they did it. Um, So they are incredibly talented and brilliant pharmacists who provide great pharmacist care, be it education or their relationships with the provider teams for the physician on the team to say, look, you, you can do this. I want to refer this patient to you actually to be managed. Um, and so I think that's the other thing is knowing that you have a great team. And to be honest, we did this work because we volunteered, you know, this was a great opportunity and we raised our hands and says, and said, we will do this work. We want to, um, and so that was, I think, the other opportunity is, is being aware of the work and saying he'll do it.
0: Well, thank you, Shannon, for sharing uh, your, uh, your research with us on behalf of, of all the Onco Farm listeners. And I meant to ask you this uh, before uh, we started. You're like the first, you're the first guest, remote guest. There's only been one other guest in podcast <laughs> history, and that was in my office. Um, so, so before I let you go, just, just um, you know, this is what we all do when we meet someone. Where'd you go to school? Where'd you train? That sort of stuff.
1: Sure. Yeah. I completed a degree in chemistry from Kalamazoo College, which is a real place. Uh, It's in Western Michigan. And I completed my PharmD degree at the University of Michigan College of Pharmacy. I did my PGY1 training at Harper University Hospital, which is part of the Detroit Medical Center, and did my PGY2 in oncology training back at the University of Michigan, where I have stayed.
0: Yes, you could say that (laughs) you stayed in in Michigan. Yeah. Kalamazoo is probably a two hours from where i grew up in indiana the only time i've ever skied was in the areas around kalamazoo michigan some yeah, of those um, i thought they were mountains kind of until until i moved <laughs> until i moved, the <laughs> you
1: moved to tennessee that makes sense kalamazoo college is on the hill at the top of the hill of kalamazoo
0: all right well thank you shannon yeah. very much and i uh, hope the manuscript is going well and look forward to hopefully reading it once that's submitted and published Sometime down the line.
1: Yeah, thanks so much.
0: Well, thank you so much to Shannon Huff for joining us on the podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at FarmDib, follow the podcast at AquafarmPod, and on Instagram at AquafarmPod. You can follow Shannon on Twitter as well. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter.